You can be seated. And kids, before you get ready to go to your class, uh, I would like to know how many of you would like to go to Disney World? Uh, I know my girls would like to go. All right. So even some of you not kids are raising your hand. Yes, you would like to go too. All right. If you would like to go to Disney World, there's a couple of things you're going to need. What are you going to need if you're going to get there? So tell me. Money. Yes, you will need your parents. Somebody who's going to take you is going to need a truckload of money to get you in and then to buy you an ice cream if you want that. Uh, what else are you going to need? More money. More money. Yeah. You're going to need passes. You're going to need, uh, need passes. You're going to need money. You're going to need magic beds. You're going to need sunscreen or you'll fry. Yes, you'll need all kinds. You'll need a car. You'll need something to get you there. And once you get in the car... You're going to need to get in the right, go in the right direction. So just out here, there's a road called the 417, and you can either get on it and go one of two ways. You can go north, or you can go south. And if you're going to go to Disney World, which one do you need to get on? South. If you get on going north, you could get to Disney World, but it's going to take you a really, really long time. You need to make sure you're on the right road. And we're talking about how we're going to get to a place of spiritual maturity. And the only way to get to a place of spiritual maturity is you've got to get on the right road. You've got to get on the path. But for you kids, your path right now is going to lead you to your class, not Disney World. So if you'll uh, stand up and you go with your teachers, follow the path to your class. And that's what Paul's theme in, goodbye, Paul's theme in Ephesians chapter 4 where we are as a church, we're walking through the book of Ephesians and we're in Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, we're spending a lot of time just kind of dwelling here in Ephesians chapter 4 because this is a central significant passage uh, for the shaping and the structuring of a church. So just where we are in the life cycle of our church, we're trying to lay the groundwork and the foundations and the, the structure and the systems and the goals and the hopes and the aspirations and the desires for what we want to be and what we want to do. In Ephesians chapter 4, the book of Ephesians is one of the best books to help shape how we think about what God is calling uh, His church to be and to do. And so we're walking through Ephesians chapter 4, and actually, from 4 all the way to the end of the book in chapter 6, uh, there's a theme that runs through the whole uh, book. It's, it's walk. Walk. And so if you read like the NIV, it'll translate live. This is how you live. They're trying to help you see that this, you're, you're called to get on a path that's to take you somewhere. You're to walk the path, down the path of maturity to walk down the path of purity, you're to walk in love, you're to walk in light, you're to walk in wisdom, and it's, to, it's, it's trying to place you on a certain path. And so one of the questions, just even as we begin, is to think, all right, am I on the path? Do I know where Christ wants to take me as a person and as a church? Am I on the path, or am I going in the wrong direction? What path am I on? The path of purity, the path of love, the path of light, wisdom. But this first section is all about how to bring us to a place of maturity. And what Paul will do in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is give you three kind of arenas where you're going to have to um, live well. The arena of the church, the arena of the world, and the arena of your home. And so he wants to place us on a path that we can um, walk towards maturity in those 
arena. So we're looking at this. If you look on your back, if you've got your bulletin, just you see in 1 through uh, 17 this equation for maturity, how we can get to a place of maturity. And it's, it's, it's gospel community plus gospel ministry equals gospel maturity. So community ministry equals maturity. So the path, if you're going to get on the path of things you're going to need, you're going to need a certain community, and then you're going to need a certain type of ministry, and that's going to get you to a place of maturity. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is the community that we need is marked by character and convictions. It's a community that's marked by humbleness, gentleness, and patience. It's a community that's marked by the character of bearing with one another's burdens and eager to maintain unity. That's its character. And then it has certain convictions. It's Trinitarian convictions where it believes in one spirit, one body, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father who is in all, above all, and through all. So there's these convictions that the community has to hold. Now he's shifting in verse 7 and is going to move us to, all right, what type of ministry do you need to experience so you can grow in maturity? So what I want to do this morning is we're going to start looking at verse 7 through 16, and there's just two things about ministry that I want you to think about. I want you to think about this morning the diversity of ministry and the difficulty of it as we think about it in the context of something essential that is needed to bring us to a place of maturity. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When every part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this is the theme. How do you get to a place where you're uh, built up in love, where you're mature where you're fully equipped and experience the fullness of Christ. And what I want you to see here, kind of the main point in this section, is that the risen Christ has given gifts to his church. And these gifts are how the risen Christ is going to build his church, expand his kingdom, and implement his rule. So he is risen, he is reigning, and from his throne he gives gifts to his church, and the whole point of the gifts is to build it up. And the gifts are people. They're not just things, they're actual people. So let's think about a couple things as we look at verse 7. Uh, we'll focus in on 7 through 10, but two things I want you to see is first the diversity of ministry and then the difficulty. 
Actually, verses 7 through 10 are a pretty challenging passage to kind of unravel exactly what Paul is talking about. What is he saying here? It's a pretty, uh, he quotes Psalm 68. But he does it in a really interesting way. So if you're like, you know, if you're uh, of like the engineering kind of bent and you see Paul, he's quoting Psalm 68, then you go back and actually read Psalm 68, you think, hmm, that's not exactly what it says. He's, he's, he's doing something interesting with that passage. What is, what is going on here? He's actually doing something pretty profound and revolutionary that we'll see in a second. But what the, the big point is that Christ is ascended, he's risen, he's reigning on his throne, and now he's pouring out to his people these different gifts. A couple of things in verse 7, do you notice? It says, but grace was given, grace was given to each one of us. Did you know how often that idea of each one of us, each, we all, we all, each one of us, so that we become mature, so that we grow up, so that we experience fullness. Grace is given to each one of us. You know, we live in a world, part of our world is just a post-industrial world where um, things are mass-produced. Like, you have to figure out how to mass-produce things if you want to uh, thrive in the consumer capitalistic economy. And so even like this school, our modern uh, education is mass production education. But I mean, how else are you going to do it? You got to educate 75 million kids. How do you do it? You have to create systems where you put them on an educational conveyor belt that starts in kindergarten and you walk down the conveyor belt and then you pop out at the end a uh, productive cog in our economy. That's the whole point is to mass produce education. Um, But Christ's kingdom isn't really that way. And if you try and mass-produce disciples, you're going to run up into problems. Because of the way it's designed is that each one of us has a gift, has a role. Not really something that can be mass-produced. You notice the key word all throughout here is the word given. He has given Grace was given to me in verse 7. Look at verse 8. Uh, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a hope to the captives. He gave. These gifts have been given. Then again in verse 11, he gave. These are the five things he has given. These people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. These things have been given. And so what Paul is doing is he's actually quoting Psalm 68. And as I said a minute ago, it's actually, he's doing something pretty revolutionary and profound. Um, there's a, because you can look at Psalm 68 and say, wait a second, that's not what it says. Why, what, what does this actually mean? And there's a technical term for what Paul's doing. He's engaging in prosopological exegesis. So if you needed like a 10 cent Greek word, there it is for the morning. Prosopological exegesis, which is what it means is proso, person, persona. Um, what it means is all throughout the Old Testament, there was these passages that every Hebrew, every good Hebrew boy and girl knew these passages are talking about God the Father. And then the most radical thing happened because when Jesus comes, he starts either applying those to himself, taking on that persona or doing what it says only God could do. So, for example, in Psalm 68, Psalm 68 is all about Yahweh the Lord sitting on his throne and all of the nations coming and bowing down at his feet. 
Psalm 68 is what every Jewish person would read and cling to when their world was falling apart, when it looked like the Romans were oppressing them and going to crush them, or the Babylonians, or the Persians, or beforehand, even the Egyptians. And they would look and they say, no matter what my experience in life is like, I can trust that God himself is on the throne, and one day every single knee will bow before him. And then what Paul is wrestling with, and the thing that knocked him off his horse on the way to Damascus and rocked his world mentally, is there were so many things that he knew this is what God does, and yet he looks up and sees it's actually Jesus who's in that place, who's that persona, that person. It's one of the remarkable things, like when you read, like Mark does this all throughout his gospel, because the theme of Mark's gospel is, who is this? Who is this? And so he sets you up because you have all these things that you expect, like only God does this, and yet Jesus is doing it. So John the Baptist comes, he's Elijah, and what's the message that Elijah brings? Prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord is going to come. Yahweh himself is coming, and then the very next sentence is, and Jesus came. And so wait a second, it's supposed to be Yahweh, but it's Jesus and then he has Jesus doing things that every one of them would say, wait, God does this. Like, we know, we have stories about God feeding his people in the wilderness, and yet Jesus is doing that. We have stories about God destroying his enemies in the sea, and yet Jesus is doing that when he sends the demons and pigs into the sea. What's going on here? Actually, something beautiful and profound is going on here. It's they're recognizing that Jesus is uh, God himself Uh, in the flesh. So it's the risen Christ that Paul sees on the throne. And he says, now the risen Christ is giving gifts. See, in Psalm 68, all the nations bring gifts to the Father. But here he's turning it and saying, actually, Christ is on the throne and what he's doing is giving gifts to all his people. He's the victor. And normally it's to the victor go the spoils. And he says, with this victor, he's actually distributing all the spoils. All the gifts are flowing out from him. So the risen Christ is giving gifts to his church. This is how he's building it. This is how he's expanding his kingdom. So what I want you to see is notice what it means is that no single individual and no single church will have all of the gifts. He's going to distribute these gifts uh, liberally to build up his kingdom. So actually what I have here, because we're kind of doing a couple different things as we go through Ephesians. We're trying to look at what does the text say and teach us, and then how can we use that to shape the structure of who we are going to be as a church. But a couple things I want you to think about, because of the way Christ distributes his gifts, it means no one individual will have them all, so you need one another. It also means no one church will have them all, so you, you need one another. But there's a couple of different ways to think about the gifts that he distributes. And as we read through this list, I've got kind of five things that can mark a church. And as you think about it, we'll go through it really quickly. Because all of you who have experienced in church in the past, you've, you've, you've experienced probably one of these. And all of us without thinking have a natural assumption that one of these is probably the right way to do it. And then the other ones are a little, a little off. So look at these different kind of models. You can have a doctrine-driven model. So that's a church that's really marked by sound doctrine, theological depth. At its best, it has really strong uh, teaching, lots of quality content. If you go to a church and you hear a word like prosopological exegesis, you're in a place that's probably 
a doctrine-driven model. You're around people who find that important. Um, so at its best, it can create really strong teaching. I mean, the point of the sermon last week was how important it is to have stable, solid theological convictions. Um, at its worst, those churches can become legalistic. They can become authoritarian, overgrown with theological jargon and sticklers for doctrinal exactness, and they can become cold, just places that are cold. You can have worship-driven models, so this can happen in kind of two ways, like a very high church uh, variety with lots of um, liturgical, you know, like smells and bells is kind of how you say it. Or it can have the, the low church variety, which is tremendously um, emotionally expressive worship and, and music. And at its best, these churches, I mean, the, it's emotionally engaging. Um, it can connect you. You can have wonderful uh, music in both, both extremes. You know, at, at its worst, you can live for emotional highs, become, you know, experientially uh, frothy and sentimental, and you can become very legalistic. Actually, you'll see how the temptation to legalism is inherent in all of them. You can have a community-driven model of a church that's kind of highly relational, very committed to intimacy, to fellowship, to things like small groups and wants to relate well. You know, one of the keys in like these type of churches where you really know real ministry is happening is when you sit down with someone and say, like, how are you? You know, really, like, how are you? How are you feeling? How, how are you doing? Uh, it's, it's community, community is relationally um, driven, you know, at at the worst, those churches can become ingrown, like super democracies where nothing ever gets done, and they can also become legalistic. You can have an evangelism-driven model. So like if you grew up in the kind of old-school SBC, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, I mean, the Southern Baptist came the largest denomination in the country. By these strong, you know, you take the sawdust trail kind of revival meeting, and you bring it into the church every single week because you, you want to preach the gospel, and people come to know the Lord, and you have you know, altar calls, and kind of the modern iteration for that is the attractional church, where you're trying to do whatever you can to attract people uh, to come into the doors. You have, you know, taglines like, you know, we'll make church so much fun, you won't want to go to hell, or things like that, where you're trying to get people uh, to come in. And at its best, you're aggressively evangelistic. You want to see lost people saved, and you'll do uh, whatever it, it takes. And the danger is that it can become shallow and repetitive, you know, the kind of carnival atmosphere. The, the method can overtake uh, the message. It can get lost, and you can become very legalistic. We're thinking this is the only right way to do it. Or you can have a justice-driven model of a church where you're you're all about serving the poor, organizing the community, um, marked with compassion, justice, you know, ministries to fight racial, racial reconciliation, fighting the homeless, fighting hunger. You're, you're fighting all of these things, and you, have, you own the responsibility to deal with the brokenness in your community. And the danger there, of course, is that uh, in all of the social aspects, the gospel can slip away and you become a, a social service organization. But what I wanted just to kind of lay these different things out for you, one, it should humble us all because no one church can be all of these things. And all of these are the role and responsibility of the church. This is the role and responsibility of Christ's kingdom to do all of these things. So on the one hand, no one church can be all of these things. But on the other hand, no church can neglect any of these things. They're all essential to a healthy, functioning 
church. And the, the pathologies come in when what we do is we often, all of us, all of us, by the way we've been gifted, are going to gravitate to one or two. And you can take those and you can um, exalt them to the exclusion of the others. And that leads to imbalance. That's not maturity. So it should humble us. And, but it also should help clarify and have the Lord say, all right, which, you know, who are we? What are we going to try our best to do well? What's our unique contribution to the kingdom in Central Florida and then the United States and then the world? What are we going to try and do well? But it also can kind of help you start to clarify, all right, what's your role and responsibility here? Is your role and responsibility to help in the teaching component, in the worshiping component, in the relating component, in the evangelism component, in the social justice and ministries component? The things that you naturally gravitate for, you naturally gravitate there because that's how God has gifted you because that's the role he wants you to play in his kingdom. And I think it's really important for us to have that kind of bigger picture because it helps um, relieve some of the anxiety we might feel about doing ministry. Uh, I remember one of the wisest, godliest men in my church. I've only really, so I've worked in four churches, and all four have been at different states of kind of disarray. So I don't know if that gives you hope or you think, uh-oh, what, what, what's going to happen here? But uh, all of those at different states of church splits. All of them had had a church split either right before I got there or kind of in the in the middle of it. And I remember uh, first church I was working at, we were just struggling, country Baptist church, trying to make it. And uh, there was a wise, godly, sweet old man named, well, actually edited that out, so not old man, young, vibrant, healthy man <laughs> in his 70s named Mr. Sid. And uh, Mr. Sid was the best first grade Sunday school teacher we had because he just loved these kids. He had this 50, uh, 55 Chevy pickup truck that he had had ever since 1955, and it still just ran smoothly. And uh, he was helping me. We were doing some work around, and I was... And, uh, and I kind of asked him because from where his house was to our church, there was like seven churches like, Mr. Sid, you drive by seven churches before you come here. Why? <laughs> why, do you, why do you come here? And, uh, and he just kind of says, well, what I do when I'm, I'm driving by, I pray. So every time I drive by these churches, I pray the Lord's blessing on them. So I drive by the Methodist church, and the Methodists, they love our community. They're handing out lunches at the school, and I ask the Lord to bless their work. I drive by the Presbyterian church, and they're the smart ones. I drive by the Lord, bless them, bless them. I drive, and and he, was, he was explaining to me how he prays for the flourishing of each one of those churches. And it struck me like our town needs more people like that who are going to pray for the full spiritual flourishing of the community. We're not going to make it if we don't have more people like that. And so as we think about it, in one sense, building God's kingdom, is not like a competition between churches. We need all of these types of churches to thrive. We need all of them to grow. We need every one of these models to be there and to be strong and to be vibrant. So one thing that can encourage us, so no individual is given all the gifts, but no church is given all the gifts. So it's to create mutual uh, dependence, to create a kingdom ecosystem where we all need to be strong. But then the goal is to kind of balance these, you know, as best you can. Do as best you can. So that's the diversity. But I want you to think for a few minutes just about the difficulty. Because there's something really, I find really interesting here, because Paul uses the term grace and gift almost interchangeably. 
Because he's talking about the gifts that God has given, or Christ has given from his throne. But then notice what he says in verse 7. But grace was given. Grace. Grace was given. Why does he say grace there and not the gifts were given? And even in chapter 3, over and over, he says, Grace was given me to do this, to preach the gospel, to proclaim the unsearchable riches. Grace was given. And I think one of the things he wants us to do is to key in on the fundamental, essential dynamic between gifts and grace. See, there, there are two realities, but you have to get them kind of in their proper perspective if you're going to experience their power. See, in one sense, there's a difference between ministry gifts and ministry grace. The Puritans were really keen on pastors especially, but all Christians understanding, are you operating from your gifts or are you operating from grace? Because they can actually be two different things. Notice, but grace was given. And I think one of the best places you can actually see this is in 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have your Bible, flip over to 1 Corinthians 13. Well, also, Maxine, I've got that on the screen. We can throw it up there. But 1 Corinthians 13, you know, probably all of you, if you've been to a wedding, you've heard this passage. And, uh, but it's really interesting because this passage is not a, a wedding passage. Actually, teased Noah and Tiffany at their wedding because this was the passage for their wedding. And I was like, in some sense, this is the uh, most inappropriate text for your wedding because 1 Corinthians 13 is all about how to get along with really difficult people. Like, I don't know any two people who are easier to get along. You're the least difficult people we know, so this doesn't apply to you. And, uh, but 1 Corinthians 13, it's actually in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 is all about spiritual gifts in the church. 1 Corinthians 14 is all about the worship in the church. And 1 Corinthians 13 is the energy and the fuel that's going to cause people to get along in the church. So it's all about um, relationships that are fracturing and breaking down. And how do you get along together? But the church in Corinth is so interesting to me. Because you read kind of like Paul's biography in his life, and I don't think any church that he planted or pastored or led caused him more stress than this one. And from certain perspectives, this was the most successful. Like the church in Corinth, they were, they were gifted, they were talented, they were young, they were eager, and they also were a mess. But from an external perspective, you might look at it and say, this is amazing. Like, they're growing, they're a cutting edge, they're doing all these amazing things. And yet, they had so many problems. Actually, look at how what he does in 13. And this is, it's, it's so, one of the reasons it's been read, it's just such beautiful language. And it's so powerful in so many different ways. There's, there's some deep-seated or deep kind of running irony in 1 Corinthians 13 because one of the things, they love rhetorical display. And they didn't like Paul because he seemed so barbaric and couldn't speak with rhetorical flourish like the educated Greeks. And then he comes out at them in 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the greatest pieces of rhetoric in all of ancient writing. And I think it's just one of those little kind of jabs, like, you're criticizing me because you don't think I can do this. No, I can do this when I want to. I just don't want the power to be trusted in this. And so it's a, it's a profound 
uh, piece of literature, writing, rhetoric. But notice what he's doing, one through three. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. See, one of the things he's doing is he's actually critiquing things that they did really well and things they would brag about. See, one of the things about this church is you probably never would have experienced a church that quite had the teaching and the worship gifts like that. He says, if I talk in tongues of angels, like you come in here in our meeting and it's like the sound of the angel's voice and we lift you up into heaven and you leave with the most warm, emotional, it's like a spiritual snuggie for your soul and you just, whoa, whoa, that's amazing. Then lift it up into heaven. He said, I can do that. But if we don't have love, you don't have anything. He said, you talk about powerful, wise preaching. If, if I can preach with all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries where you come and you could sit at my feet like, oh, this is the guru. He'll explain every problem, every sticky knot in the world. He'll untie for us. He says, I can do that and you can leave amazed. If I don't have love, you've got no, we've got nothing. And then so they were tremendous gifts with teaching, with preaching, with worship. You would have looked and said, this is amazing. Notice also the tremendous leadership vision. So if I can cast a vision that we as a people are going to move this mountain and we're going to rally to do the impossible together. Incredible leadership. But no love, it means nothing. Tremendous commitment. I mean, look at the commitment. If I give my body to be burned, you can't be more committed than that. But he said, no love, it's nothing. Or the social concern, if I give everything I have to the poor but don't have love. So actually, this church would have probably, you could have looked and you could have looked at all these models and probably given them an A on all of these things. Their doctrine, their worship, their community, justice, all of these things, it's, it's amazing. But he says, underneath the current is not a heart that's driven by the love for the gospel, the love for Christ, and the love for one another. It's meaningless. See, in one sense, that's what they were. They were doing all these things amazing, but notice what they were not. Listen as he said, love is patient. And he's implying that they're not, because they don't have it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. And so one of the things he's implying is that they are all of those things. And so what they were is they were impatient, they were harsh, they were critical, they were rude, they were jealous, they were egocentric. And they weren't loving. So therefore, at best, even though they looked so highly sophisticated and developed on the outside, at best, they were still spiritual babies. They were immature. They hadn't gotten to a place. That's why Paul, he'll go on in 1 Corinthians and say, when I was a child, I thought like a child. He said, you're still actually being childish. You know, there are M2 students who are all in uh, endocrinology, thinking about like the hormones and different things. And I'm fascinated. I think it's really interesting how one of the things that I think, you can tell me if this is true or not, but it does seem like uh, kids are experiencing puberty earlier and earlier. And it's interesting to think about all right, what happens to a person when they appear to be more physically developed than they actually are. What does that do to someone? But I think Paul would look at the Corinthian church and look at the church and say, you have this appearance of being physically developed and being mature, but you're not. 
You're, you're, you, you look mature on the outside, but on the inside, you're, you're spiritually your children, your infants, your, your babies. And so what you can have is you can actually have the gifts in operation, but not the power of grace in operation. You can appear to be an adult, but not actually um, be one. And then you see it, you can have the strong teaching gifts and in the classroom setting that comes out, but not have a heart shaped by grace. Strong leadership gifts or strong people skills, but not a heart shaped by grace. And then notice what he says. He says, if I do all of that, I'm just a clanging cymbal and a, and a noisy gong. A noisy gong. What is that? And why the noisy gong and the clanging cymbal? He's actually taking a jab at pagan worship services. Because in pagan worship services, in the, in the temple, like you would have worship all over Corinth, like you'd have in Ephesus, you'd walk in, and their worship services, actually, all of you, well, I was, all right, I was about to say all of you, if you've, none of you can understand, if you've ever been to like the club downtown, so none of you can understand this actually, but like you go into the club and you have the booming music, it's the bass, it's boom, boom, you have the lights and you have the smoke and you have all that, that is the exact same environment as a pagan temple worship service in the first century Greco-Roman world. You would walk in and you'd have the, the, cymbals, the cymbals clapping to get people moved. You'd have the bass thumping. You'd have all of that. And the whole point of the pagan worship service is we're going to have to get God's attention. We're going to have to um, show the gods that we are worthy, that we are somebody they should take note of so that they then will bless us. And what Paul says is you can do all of those things, and it's just noise. It's just noise. It's just you trying to get God or get the world's attention saying, hey, look at me. Aren't we great? Look at us. Don't, aren't we worthy of respect? Aren't we worthy of your attention and your blessing? He says you can exercise all of these gifts in such a way where you're just trying to get attention for yourself and not trying to exalt Christ. And I think the telltale sign of that is your, your ministry is marked by what he says here. It's marked by ir- impatience, irritability, pride, hurt feelings, always feeling like you're being slighted or jealousy or boasting. So one of the most important realities for our church, for any church, anyone trying to serve Christ's kingdom in ministry and in life is to say, is is grace the fundamental driving principle of my heart? Is that what's driving my ministry? Or am I coasting on my gifts? Is my prayer life really alive? Or am I struggling with feeling slighted? Are my feelings being hurt? Am, am I serving God out of anxiety or joylessness? Am I too highly critical of other churches, other ministries, other people? Is there a lot of self-pity in me, am I always the victim? What Paul would say is, is, is wake up. Become aware that you're in danger of serving um, in a way that's not fueled by this love. So what he's saying here, I think, is that the, the character has to be supreme. Godly character has to cover all of the weaknesses and the lacks. You know, if you think about it, you even look at this, all, right, all the different models, or one of the things you can say is no one person has all the gifts, so it's really important to kind of bring other people around you to help supplement the things you lack. That's true, 
But it's not the only thing that's true. Because one of the things that God wants for you is not just, I mean, you, you can't just say, all right, I don't have the gift of patience, so I get to be out on that one, so I'll get somebody. One of you needs to be really patient. We'll kind of come together. No, the whole point is to actually get you to a place where you are more patient, more kind, more loving. And so you think about some of the different gifts. Like, you cannot have the gift of public speaking, but you can still be a very good pastor or minister of the word, or you can still... Um, do that really well because if you're still gentle, humble, if you bear one another's burdens, then by default your godliness will overcome your weaknesses. Or you can actually not be a very courageous leader. You can be introverted and you can be shy, but if you're godly and humble and you walk with people, it'll overcome those deficiencies. See, all real ministry flows out of, not necessarily the gifts, but out of grace in the heart. So where do we go so we can have our character changed? How can we become the type of people where this kind of flows? There's a couple things you can do. And, you know, one thing, if you really want to uh, kind of get a good spiritual diagnostic check that'll kind of humble yourself, is you can take 1 Corinthians 4 through six, and everywhere there's love, you can just insert your name and just kind of see how you're doing. So let's kind of do it as an experiment. I'll, I'll go first because I have the microphone. But Ben is patient. Ooh, or no, we're not off to a very good start. Ben is kind. Ben does not envy. He does not boast. He is not arrogant. He is not rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable. I think we'll stop now. That's, that's far enough. Because <laughs> if you're honest, you insert yourself and you know. You know it does not work. But kind of all throughout this message, I said no one person is given all the gifts. That's actually not quite true. It's not technically true. Because there is one person who does actually have all of the gifts. And what you can do is it doesn't work if you put your name in here. But you can put another name in here and it does work. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast. He is not arrogant. He is not rude. He doesn't insist on his own way. He's not irritable. He's not resentful. You can actually put his name in all of these places and it does work. And it will ne the whole goal for maturity, the path he wants you to be on, is not necessarily to publicly exercise your gifts, but is to become more like Jesus. So your character is shaped by his, and you become more like him. That's the path. And the only way you'll ever be able to express these things is if you first experience them. You will never become truly patient with others until you realize how patient he's been with you. And once you know that and feel that, that's what's going to fuel your patience. Like, you'll never truly be a kind person. The kind of kindness he calls us to, like in this parable of the Good Samaritan, you will never be like that as long as you pompously take the stance of the Good Samaritan. Like, I'm the one looking around the world, and I see all these broken people, and I'm not going to be like those Pharisees who walk by. I'm going to be the person who's going to stoop down and help others. No, you're actually just like them in a different way. The only way you'll ever have the energy and the power to be that is to recognize in that story, you're the one broken on the ground. 
You're the one weak and wounded that your sin beat you down and you had no hope. And he stepped out of heaven. He paid your debt. He bore your burdens. He picked you up. He wiped you off. And he set you back on your feet. And once you know that and feel that, you then will have the energy and the power and the strength to do that in a small way for others, what he's done in this grand way for you. That's what fuels it for us. That's what fuels all of these things. So if you're here this morning, the most important thing, as we said to the kids, if you want to get to Disney World, the most important thing is you got to get on the path. If you start going the wrong direction, you're not going to get there. And so the first thing is, are you on the path? Are you walking the path to lead you to maturity, to purity, to love, to forgiveness? Are you on that path? And then Christians, for you, if you're on the path, the real question is not, are you there? Because if you're alive, you're not there yet. The real question is, are you going forward? Are you moving forward? Are you taking little steps on the path? So let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your grace, your mercy, your redemption. We thank you for the profound gift of grace. And we ask that you help us all to experience it. Before we can ever really express it, we have to experience it. And so we come before you now humbly. We come before you needing your grace and your mercy. We confess that we are prideful people. We confess that we are very easily wounded and stung and we're, we're too quickly and easily stung by criticism or perceived slights. And we ask that you would help us. We confess that even at our, at our best, when we're using the gifts that you've given us, um, so often we can turn those into tools for self-exaltation and trying to build our own kingdom and making our own name. So we confess that. We ask that you would help us. We ask that you would make us humble. We ask that you would draw us to yourself. We ask you to draw us to your table. And we thank you now that we can come to the table and we can experience the the token, the symbol of your redemption for us. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. So one of the key pieces on that path of moving toward maturity, one of the key pieces to, to fuel you as you go is a tangible reminder of the gift that he gave, his sacrifice to renew us, restore us, and redeem us. So here at Trinity, we practice the intention method, which means you'll take a wafer, you'll dip, and you'll um, let that be a reminder. The Lord calls us, and he says, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is a physical um, reminder of his goodness. So once our servers are in place, you come.